Hey folks, this is Season 4, Episode 21 of the Application Security Podcast. On this episode, we are joined by Travis McPeak, and he talks to us about SecOps and how SecOps makes developers' lives easier. This is another one of the interviews that I did out at AppSec USA, and we hope you enjoy. The Application Security Podcast. Here we go. Hey folks, welcome again to the Application Security Podcast, and once again we are coming to you from AppSec USA, and we are joined by Travis McPeak, who is actually the person who is one of the main folks behind AppSec USA, and uh, also a big player, and even a chapter leader for the yes. West Bay Area? Okay. All right, so um, yeah, so Travis, we always start this interview process off by asking people, what's your security origin story, or how did you find yourself going down this application security path? Oh, I love that question. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I have always been fascinated with security. Um, I ended up very lucky that it became the field it is today. I'd be probably doing it even if I didn't get paid very much. Uh, but, you know, obviously it's hot now. Um, when I was a kid, I would do things like go around the house and gather up all the locks and keys and, and put them in a big pile. You know, I didn't even know what they were yet. I just thought they were cool. Um, at one point, my parents had put a password on the computer because I'm sure I was doing something bad and they <laughs> wanted to punish me. And it turned out that their password wasn't very good. Uh, one time, my mom unlocked the computer so I could do something. And I saw that there was only two keys that were wet after she'd been doing the dishes. It was, it was W and the enter key. So my mom had picked a password of W, and I managed to cleverly deduce that, and I maintained persistence for months. <laughs> Good old shoulder surfing always yeah, exactly. comes through for the win, right? Wow. And so then kind of where did you go from there as far as did you study computer science at college, or what's your background? Yep, computer science in undergrad, and then there was a program information assurance at Santa Clara University, and that was a good way to kind of do more formal security studying. Uh, had some good courses there. We had a you know web application security hands-on thing, a you know exploit kind of thing where you learn about buffer overflows and all that good stuff. Uh, read a ton of books on the side. You know, I've always been like interested in like social engineering. How does that work? You know, mm-hmm. Mintnix books and stuff like that, and then. Uh, also began, you know, pretty heavily from an early age uh, programming. I did C, did some Java in school, and then uh, uh, discovered that I love Python. Hmm. That seems to be the most popular language on earth at the moment, Python. Especially for security folks. It's so uh, easy to prototype an idea you have. You can just spin it up, get it working in a couple hours, you know, whereas a uh, lower level language, you might spend uh, days setting up the same thing. Yeah. So you mentioned you read it, you've read a whole lot of books and things. I'm just curious, this is completely off the cuff, but what's the uh, the book that you've given to most other people I love a security background? I love Tangled Web. Uh, oh, I love that book yeah, too. Some of the, just the level of depth that he goes into in that book is, is mind-blowing. You know, you see somebody apply that much rigor to the field, you know, with that much experience, and I, I just love it. Yeah, I agree. I've given that one. That's probably number two on my list. I've still the Gene Kim's original DevOps book is probably the one I've given the most. Yeah, that's just because I think that's like the best book 
because it's fictional and like you really get into the story, like no one else has really been able to capture that taking a business idea and get you into the story. Like yeah, you did. I agree. I love that book. So you're, when I look at your Twitter profile, it says sec ops. And on the podcast here, we've talked to a lot of different people about the whole DevSecOps movement. We had Julian Vahenton recently talking about his new book. And, and so, but when I saw SecOps, that just kind of caught my attention because it wasn't DevSecOps. It wasn't. And, and so from your perspective, when you say SecOps is your specialty or, or what you focus on, what does that actually mean? The way I see it is uh, basically how do we operationalize a security model that allows us to get certain assurances and controls that we need to have to feel comfortable with the product uh, and then at the same time allow developers to do what they need to do um, and that whole like operational flow is, is kind of what I mean uh, with SecOps so some of the things um, that we'll do is uh, I have a project called RepoKid that uses data about uh, our AWS services what's being used and will if you haven't used a certain permission in a given time it will remove that permission and we can operationalize it so hmm. instead of doing these policy reviews like you'd have to do in an old school model, we can actually just use data and uh, make those changes automatically at scale. And so that's uh, that's automated. It automatically goes through and just checks, it waits you know, a certain amount of time and then, so you, there's no manual kickoff of that? Completely automated. Okay. Wow. And then, so you have more of a manual process when you add permissions back in then? Yes, uh, and you know there's some tooling for that as well. Uh, the idea is to get all of that down to you know either no touch or very little touch, so that if we have something that you know takes us an hour to do, then obviously if a thousand people need it, we're going to be doing not much else except for this thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. So anytime we see like friction points like that, we see automation opportunities. So can can you do so? Can something be manual and still be SecOps? Sure, totally. Yeah, we have a we have a lot of manual processes as well. Um, so, the more operational nature of you know, hey, we have a high value uh, application and we need to make sure that it's dialed in with the right permissions. Um, we'll still do architecture reviews. Uh, that kind of like falls under the SecOps umbrella for us as well. So, is SecOps? I'm trying to wrap my my brain around this this idea of SecOps, kind of from your perspective, and so. I guess let's kind of let's back up a little bit, and, and I'm going to kind of come at this from more of a, I guess, traditional AppSec perspective. So, where does secure development lifecycle fit in SecOps? Sure. Yeah. Let me um, let me give you. A, I won't answer your question right now. I'll um, give another example to kind of like mm -hmm. help solidify what I'm talking about. So you have all of these signals, right? You have um, all these tools that you either have built in house or you you bought or whatever, and they're providing you with signals. And uh, the job is to take all the signals, filter out the noise, and come up with things that you actually want to action. And then once you have a signal that you want to action, you know, okay, I have this tool, guard duty is telling me about something that looks like it might be serious. How do I go and investigate that? How do I have the data that I need to make an intelligent decision about whether this thing it's telling me is an actual problem or whether it's a false positive? So SecOps is a so it's for the developers, but it's also for the incident response function to be able to... So SecOps is setting me up to have the data I need in the event that we do have a problem. Exactly. Okay. Um, so repo... So, so I guess SecOps is... When I start to think about that from kind of the secure development lifecycle perspective, it's, it's almost like it's in the kind of release and deploy kind of portion of 
a bigger model. It's not you're, so you don't really care about security requirements, for example, in SecOps, or do you? Um, we don't care as much about security requirements in applications. We have security, uh, the way that my team does it is we have security requirements in our cloud infrastructure. Our team is a little bit confusingly named, um, but generally our, our wheelhouse and bread and butter is cloud infrastructure and, and things related to that. Okay, so this is more of the kind of on the infrastructure side of, but you still have to play in that you're you know, you're, you're the, the, the deployment piece of the DevOps world. Um, okay, so that, that, that definitely makes sense. And so, I mean, what else, you know, we had this example of Repo Kid that you talked about. I mean, what else do you have to do to make developers' lives easy? Or is that your, I guess, let me back up, is that your goal? Are you trying to make their lives truly easy or allow them to get their job done? Uh, both of those things, yeah. In fact, uh, it's a success requirement for our team to to at bare minimum not introduce friction for developers. Um, our best uh, success cases are when we can actually make life easier, as you mentioned. So uh, one of the favorite examples that I have is a tool called Lemur that does automatic certificate provisioning. Mm. Now think about a developer that wants to set up TLS for their service. You know, they need to like go and Google, like how do I actually create the certificate? You know, what should, what cypher suite should I choose for it? Um, what, what does a strong password look like? Where do I even store that password? These are things that developers don't want to have to worry about. And if they do, then they might make a mistake with it. Yeah. Um, so Lemur was actually born out of a case where, you know, we, like everybody else, had Heartbleed. Uh, I wasn't there at the time, but the, the team that was, was dealing with Heartbleed. And they need to rotate all the certificates. Like, oh, where are, all, where are all those certificates? Where are the keys? You know, I'm sure that, you know, like everywhere else, you have passwords taped, you know, under someone's <laughs> desk. And, you know, the certificates, you don't even know who owns it. Mm -hmm. And so Lemur was uh, kind of this uh, convenience tool where uh, it makes it really easy for developers. You click a button, you tell it what you want, and then it goes and puts it on your uh, load balancer for you. Now, so that's language specific or language non-specific? Uh, sorry, I don't understand. The so I mean, I guess so. This is, so it doesn't matter what what language I'm writing my my applications in or anything. Lemur is something that kind of sits at the infrastructure level. Correct. And so it works. It doesn't matter if I write it in Go or Python or Java or whatever. Um, this is a kind of a, on on more of the operational side. Exactly. Yeah. And those are those are really nice projects too. Where. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, I, one of the things in my background is I, I wrote Bandit, and Bandit's great. It's a Python, you know, static analysis light tool, but Bandit only works for Python. And then, you know, if you have Ruby, then you, you have Breakman, and you mm -hmm. have to put all these tools together. Yeah. But the, the solutions like this, where it's just, you know, you write one thing and it works across all the applications are really nice leverage points. Yeah, and that's, I mean, like you said, this is something that people get wrong all the time like at least once a day in a big company somebody's going to try to solve that problem and they're going to get it they're going to do something wrong they're going to create a certificate that's you know an ssl certificate which we're telling you know we don't want people to use anymore after the break travis explains how secops adds value the application security podcast operates with support from security journey a Security Belt program provides the three pillars of successful AppSec training. Learning, application, and experience. Visit us on the web at www.securityjourney.com to learn how you can teach and empower your developers using a new kind of security training. Travis, what other things would you like folks to know about things that you have operationalized? 
Uh, so Security Monkey is a, is a great example. Um, you know, for us, we have multiple AWS accounts, lots of resources, and Security Monkey serves a couple of functions. But the, probably the most important is that it's just asset inventory. So you know, these are the S3 buckets we have, and here's the difference in historical revisions for that. Uh, you know, it, something changed two days ago. What was that? Um, Security Monkey will continuously monitor all of our accounts for all these assets and then track the version that you currently have and then you can go back and see when did it change. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically like a web, it's like a web app, it has a web app front end to it. Totally. And then yep. it allows you to, it does all this collection. And you know, when you think about S3 and you think about all the times we hear about people with their S3 buckets that are incorrectly configured. So is Security Monkey doing some of that configuration check for you as well to make sure you're not leaving it wide open where people can, uh, somebody on the public internet could just go and access it? Exactly, yeah. Once you actually have the state of, of your inventory, then you can look for misconfigurations and alert those. And in some, in some cases, even fix them automatically. Yeah, I was going to ask that as kind of my next my, my next question. So from a SecOps perspective, when you're all about automation and lowering friction, in, in this case, so you're saying that it's, this actually could go and fix your S3 configuration directly. So it knows, it has all of your the right permissions on AWS, for example, to be able to go in and actually make an adjustment to an S3 privilege uh, or S3 permissions to protect to, to protect the, the system. Uh, it can be configured in a couple of ways. Security Monkey, um, the default permissions are, are mainly view. Um, so it can just see the resources you have and it can't make changes. Okay. Um, one of the things we've operationalized is a queue enforcer. So if you, um, something that we've seen developers accidentally do is make their queue open to the world and we have an enforcement mechanism that will actually just go through and close that automatically. Uh, when you say queue, is that an AWS specific thing? Like, are you, what, what do you mean by queue? Yes, yeah, so the, the simple queue service is an Amazon primitive that they give you to just provide a queue. Okay, so the, program, the developers are act accessing it programmatically and they're not, when they create it, they're not setting the right permissions on it. They're just leaving like defaults or something. Correct, yeah, in okay. some case, you know, Amazon's very good. It's very powerful. Uh, it's also very easy to make mistakes, um, especially if you're not sure what you're doing or you haven't used the service before. And so what we'll see is these cases where developers didn't mean to make it public. Mm -hmm. And in that case, we can just fix it for them and then usually reach out and find out, you know, if they're confused or if we can help them in some way. So when you have, so I, I, I think of these individual tools are kind of the end result. Walk me through kind of the process for how you see something that eventually ends up being a tool, right? Because you must see things like these tools, you didn't sit on a, on a whiteboard and say, what are all the operational tools we could potentially do, right? There was a problem somewhere that you saw. And so can you just walk me through kind of the process or your, the way you think through those to end up actually creating a tool? Sure. Yeah. So it's usually born out of either something where we spend a lot of time doing something over and over and over again, and we see it an obvious case where automation can help, or there's a problem that we want to solve that we we couldn't actually scale up to manually. And so either in either of those cases, automation is a, is going to be a clear way to go. And then you know we don't we would prefer not to build something ourselves if there's something that exists already that we can use. And so at that point, normally we go, okay, what are the alternatives? Where can we find something that will take care of our need? If there's something there, then probably just buy it. If there's not, then we start thinking about, okay, uh, what can we do in this space? You know, how much time would it take? Think through you know, the investment that we're going to make in that space, uh, how it fits with our strategic goals. And from there, then we'll, we'll start um, you know, architecting something. Mm -hmm. 
And so what's the role of things like you know, traditional kind of application security testing tools? Are, are those on your radar screen as somebody who's focused on SecOps, meaning SAST and DAST and IAST? And I always feel like I have to say, oh, my, at the end of those, because why, <laughs> why do we have all these four vendors out there? Like, can we make some other something other than a four-letter acronym to describe <laughs> our tools in AppSec? I don't know how many times I've said that here. But um, is that... You know, is, are those sets of tools bumping up against SecOps, or are those something that's completely kind of in a different stack of things to worry about? We definitely think about them, but uh, you know, we're fortunate enough to have another team that's very talented that that uh, focuses more on those kind of problems. I've definitely done it in my past, but it's not part of my current role. Okay, so so in a highly functioning SecOps organization. You're, you're, you're not really focused on code quality and those types of things. That's something that's going to be done somewhere else when you're operating at a high nature like this. I think it just depends on the kind of the organizational choices you've made. You know, in, in my particular role, uh, the organization's been divided that way. But I think that there's definitely room to, you know, have, have these kind of considerations in your process. Obviously, if you're a startup and you're a one-man shop, you know, one-woman shop, then you're going to do, you're going to wear all the hats. And I think, yeah, yeah at that point, it, it makes sense to do that consideration in line with the, the stuff I'm talking about. Yeah, you kind of have to at that point. You have to do whatever you have to do to be successful, right? Yep. So where, where does, as somebody who's a, a practitioner of SecOps, if, let, let's say we have a listener out there, maybe somebody who's in college right now, and they're thinking, wow, this sounds really cool. I want to learn how to do this. What, how, what do you recommend that that person who might have a little bit of AppSec knowledge but really not a lot of SecOps knowledge how do they how do they even get started? Is there training somewhere that they can go to do this? Is it on the job type of stuff that has to happen or where where do we where do we learn more about this stuff? Oh, I love that question because that gives me a, a great opportunity to shill for OWASP. You can <laughs> totally become involved in your local OWASP chapter. There's a ton of resources. You can meet people that are doing that kind of work. And the other thing that I wish that somebody told me earlier in my career is that becoming involved in an open source project and contributing is a great way to get your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. You know, go find one of these tools that you think is exciting, uh, try and install it, see if there's any you know, changes that you can make to the, the manual or the readme. Um, there's definitely change, you know, some kind of enhancement that anybody can do that would be very welcome to the developers and maintainers of that project. So getting involved in open source is a great way to do it. Yeah, and that's Something that we uh, we certainly make that recommendation all the time here because we want to you know we love OWASP and we want we want to see everybody get involved in it. Um, are there any particular blogs or anything or any sites or things that you go to for SecOps related stuff like industry related stuff that we could point people to? Nothing uh, specific. You know, I do my daily rotation of Hacker News and Reddit NetSec like everybody else. But okay. uh, yeah, I don't know of any particular resources. There's nothing there. specific to SecOps then. Okay. Cool. And has anybody written the book on SecOps? Is it, is even does even such a thing as exist? I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen one that was SecOps specific. There must be, but uh, I'm not aware of them. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe you got to go write one. <laughs> yeah. now. You know, everybody should write a book, it's right? A good idea. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about um, the OWASP Bay Area chapter here. Um, I know we got a lot of listeners who are around this area, and probably a bunch of them that are already there with you. But um, tell us just a little bit about OWASP. Bay Area. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, so we have been operating for quite a while. Uh, we have a, a few leaders, and so we're very lucky that we have lots of resources. There's companies that want to host us. We have great speakers in this area, and our primary product is just a regular meetup. So show up, meet some cool people, you know, drink some beer, eat pizza, and just listen to cool talks. Um, and then in addition to that, we have a hands-on Hacker Thursday event 
which one of our leaders, Prashant, has put together in the last year, and those have been extremely, extremely popular. They're basically just a hands-on way to learn some new things. So you'll have an instructor come in, they're an expert, they'll spend two and a half hours walking you through this new thing that you want to learn, and then at the end of the day, you've learned a new skill, you've met some people, um, all good times. And what are those? Uh, I'm just I, I run the Raleigh Durham chapter, so what, what are the what are the topics that that he's cover Prashant's covering in two and a half hours? Oh, we have uh, so, so first of all, it's not Prashant himself; it'll be uh, instructors that we bring. Oh, okay, yeah, bring but, it. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, so we have you know. Uh, iPhone application security is one that we have coming up. Okay. We had one on uh, um, microcontrollers and uh, you know making your own like uh, rubber ducky. Um, that was one. That I was, saw that yeah. one. People were talking about that on Twitter. Yeah, that was very popular. Um, one of our chapter leaders actually ran that one. Um, just anything you can think of, you know, like how to do source code review is one. Okay. Yeah. Everything under the sun. Okay, that's neat. And then so there's the regular meetup. There's the hands-on Hacker Thursdays, and then there's obviously. The chance for folks are when the conference comes to the West Coast. Um, I'm assuming that uh, the Bay Area chapter is involved in some degree for oh, the yeah. West Coast version. I should definitely uh, plug AppSec Cali. If, for anybody that's not been, that's a great conference. Okay, and that's coming up in, in when? January. January 2019. All right, Travis, thanks for uh, taking the time to share your experiences in SecOps, and um, thank you for continuing to work on, with OWASP along the way. And, uh, hope you have a, a great rest of your conference. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please do us a favor and visit the iTunes store and give us a five-star rating. Our intro music is 8-Bit Kung Fu by Born and TJ, and the outro is Southern Delight by Stefan Kartenberg. You can find us on Twitter at AppSecPodcast or on the web at www.appsecpodcast.org.